Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. You can also follow along in the bulletin on page 7. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful natures with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's been a while. Happy Father's Day. Um, growing up, uh, my father's life was uh, taken from him at a very young age, at a very young age for me. Um, I've never lacked or, or felt the need or longed for a father, and yet I understand the impact of a father. Being a father, I understand the impact and how important it is um, uh, to, to grow and to learn uh, and to experience the blessings of the presence of a father as well as the mistakes that a father makes in life um, as they bring you into uh, a believing faith in Jesus. And so I want to say happy Father's Day. It's a special day today. I mean, we have Father's Day. Uh, for those of you who are aware and are celebrating, happy Juneteenth. It's an incredible, um, at least milestone at least, for many uh, and for, for really for this country to at least get to cross this bridge. We need to cross many more uh, in the pursuit of justice and peace and order for our communities, um, especially for many who have suffered and many who have lived legacies of suffering. So just really grateful uh, for those of you who are, are celebrating quietly, uh, and yet um, I want to make sure that we acknowledge you and hear you and desire to continue to walk with you as uh, we consider just the brokenness of our city and the brokenness of the world around us. Lastly, um, it's, it's a special day for us because we're about to launch a new site here in, in Cherry Hill, right across the bridge. So please be praying for us. Um, it's, a, it's a special day. We're filled with excitement, some nervousness, um, but um, we're just really grateful that the Lord has brought us and carried us here today on Eagle's Wings. Now, we're going to look at this passage. <clears throat> One of the biggest pitfalls in a Christian life, there are a lot of people in this room who believe in God, who know God loves them, and yet when it comes down to it, they're every bit as selfish and anxious and messed up uh, as anyone who's not a believer. 
In other words, they live powerless lives. Why? And it's because of this. Belief or knowledge doesn't automatically change you. There are a lot of people here who believe. There are a lot of people here, they, they believe and yet mistake that for faith. Now, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit over the next couple of months. In other words, what we're saying is, what happens when the Spirit of God enters in? What happens when the gospel transforms your life? On one hand, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's from a real faith in God. And yet, on the other hand, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to grow. In other words, otherwise, everything you do in life will be rote. It'll be mechanical. You'll be powerless. We're going to look at four very quick things today. One, a problem with the fruit of the Spirit. Two, what it is. Three, how do you grow it? How does it grow? And four, where is the power? Where do you get the power to cultivate, to bear the fruit of the Spirit? First, we're going to look at the problem. Verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, live by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, if you're led by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, since you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, you're led by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit. When Paul says, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, what he's saying is, before you live by, before you were led by something else other than God, something else other than the Spirit of God, but now, if you have new life, if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit of God in you. You've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to merit this. But what does it mean? It means the life-changing, life-altering, transforming power of God. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now living and residing and working in you. The fruit of the Spirit is a mark that God is residing in you. And it's not something you do. Paul doesn't say, if you're a Christian, if you have new life, do this or do that. Paul says, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you will grow in character. He doesn't say, the Spirit of God is going to get in, and all of a sudden, you're going to be able to do all these things. A lot of us place a tremendous amount of weight on your gifts and what you do, but that's not what Paul rests in. That's not what Paul looks at. He says, if the Spirit of God is in you, you will grow in character. That's the fruit. It may start small, but it's there. Every Christian is bearing fruit. And so if you don't see any fruit, there's a great possibility you are not a Christian. There's a great possibility that there's no new life in you. Wow. I mean, pastor, how can you say that? It's because Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, you recognize a tree by its fruit. In other words, every tree, every tree, if it's alive, bears fruit. Every tree bears fruit. The fruit doesn't give the tree life. A lot of people here, they're serving, they're working, they're focused on doing. And in many ways, they're acting the way Christians in their minds should act. That they're thinking that fruit It's going to give them life if I serve, if I do, if I do these things. That's not what Paul says here. The fruit is, first of all, not in what you do, not in how you serve. And it's also not meant to give you life. It's a sign 
that you are alive. It's a sign that the tree is alive. Now, that's scary. Why is that scary? Because a lot of us grew up in a church, and you're taught, oh, you want to be a Christian? Then you got to serve. You, you want to be a Christian? You got to do this, and you got to do that. You got to worship. You got you to give. You got to go on missions. And the Christian life isn't less than that. The Apostle Paul saying it's a whole much more thing greater than that altogether. And so, but we have a lot of people who've done all these things, all these things that people with new life actually do, and yet there's no change, there's no joy. There's no change, there's no joy. And you never know where you stand with God. It's scary because that means that you could be living alongside people who demonstrate fruit of the Spirit and never demonstrate, never model, never produce actual fruit. You could be living alongside people who have new life and yet not have new life. And you thought you had new life, but in reality, you've just been mimicking, mimicking what new life looks like. This is the problem. This is why it's scary. Because that means that you could be hanging around people who've experienced God and not experienced God. You could be hanging around people who have new life and actually not have new life personally. You could be hanging around people who have the Spirit of God in them and yet not have the Spirit of God in you personally. It's scary. It's a problem. What is it? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Paul's whole point here is that the fruit of the Spirit, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that comes natural to you. It's something that you can't produce on your own. You can copy it. You might be able to fake it for a little while, but like fruit that has been tied around a tree, like fruit that's been stapled to a tree, a dead tree, it doesn't make that tree alive. Eventually what happens, the fruit and the tree, they both rot. Everything falls to the ground because there's no life there. It's not connected to life. What is the fruit of the Spirit? The Apostle Paul says in verses 22 to 23, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine things. We're going to go into each one of these things over the next few months. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions to kind of get us going here. Love. When you give of yourself, when you're serving, serving somebody, serving someone other than yourself, are you serving them for them or are you serving them because you're needy? That serves you. And, and it cures a sense of loneliness or a need for meaning or a need for purpose in your life to feed your ego, to improve your status. Joy. Joy is to delight in the presence of God for who he is regardless of the circumstance. So it enables you, joy gives you poise. Joy gives you uh, tremendous poise in harsh circumstances. In other words, do you go to God for God? Or do you go to God for things? Do you take joy in God for God? Do you delight in God for God? Or do you take delight in God because you get things from him? Peace. Peace is to trust in God in a way that leads you to surrender so you're no longer battling God for control over your life. In other words, are you less anxious? Have you grown less anxious in surrendering your life to Jesus? 
Patience. The Greek word for patience is makruthumia. It means long-suffering. And it points to a suffering that endures and doesn't take in a deep-rooted bitterness. In other words, right now, since you've become a Christian, is your heart softer or have you grown harder? Kindness. Kindness. Are you the same inside the way you think about someone as you are on the outside the way you treat that person? Goodness. Do you treat people the same regardless the circumstance? Faithfulness. No matter what, are you reliable? Are you consistent in showing up in times of danger, in times of difficulty when you are called to it? Gentleness, how relationally humble are you towards other people? How relationally humble are you towards other people? Self-control, do you possess a relational IQ, a relational discipline in walking with other people? Or are you always trying to control people and control situations for yourself? That's a lot. That's why we're going to spend several months walking through them. But here's the thing. None of these things, and this is, the, this is a key, none of these things are intended to stand alone. They're all connected. If you see each of these things, which we often do, we tend to see these things as individual virtues. And so, yes, I can focus on one of these things, but you quickly realize that I'm falling out of the others. Most of us look at these nine qualities, and we see areas where, hey, here I'm stronger, here I'm weaker, I have love, but I like patience. You see that? I have love, but I lack gentleness. But only through the Spirit can you bear all of them organically in a way where they're all connected? In John chapter 12, you have Jesus. He enters into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. <clears throat> and Jesus is the high king. And so it's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And yet he rides in on a young donkey, a donkey's colt. And he's actually entering in, preparing for his death. This is this time that he enters into Jerusalem, he's getting ready to die. And so you have the high king, and yet so humble, so gentle. The gospel shows us that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of every ideal. It's why we look for people who are high and yet can come low. Because Jesus Christ has done that. Because that's who he is. It's in his character. He is so kingly, and yet he's so humble. There are few, few people who can associate kingliness with humility, but that's the character of God. That's the character of Jesus. He's kingly, but he's humble. Only in the gospel can you be both. They're integrated. They're not two separate things. And so only in the gospel can you have perfect love and perfect patience, perfect love and perfect gentleness, perfect love and perfect kindness, perfect love and yet perfect self-control. Only in the gospel can you be self-controlled and yet gentle. A lot of people who are self-controlled, they're not, they're not gentle. Only in the gospel can you be self-controlled and joyful. Only in the gospel... Can you be faithful and yet good? A lot of people are faithful, 
and we become proud. Only in the gospel can you be faithful yet kind. And they're all integrated. The Apostle Paul doesn't say this is the fruits of the Spirit. Later on in this passage, he says, you see the acts, plural, of the sinful nature. But here it's the fruit, singular fruit of the Spirit. They're all connected. So if you're a Christian, you have all these things. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is residing in you and he's working in you to produce every dimension of the fruit of the Spirit in your life in a way that they all hang together because he's making you more like Jesus. You know what spiritual maturity is? It looks like this, self-centeredness. I mean, you know, self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-pity, self-justification, self-indulgence. It's self-serving. And the Apostle Paul here, he's saying that is natural but when the love of God through Jesus Christ when the gospel becomes real in your life when it becomes personal in your life there's love and joy and peace and patience you see what I'm saying do you get it there are people in this room that are saying this well I try real hard to work on all these things I'm really trying hard to work on these things all of them so I'm growing right not really. Not really. Is it organic in your life? How long do the changes do you make? How long do they last? You see, when something's organic, there's a quality to it. There's a complexity to it. There's a quantity to it. You see nuances in your sin. You see nuances in the layers of your sin. And so the gospel's going into all these layers and all these nuances, and it's shaping you in ways that you can't manipulate. You can't control these things on your own. And so the way you, you live, the manner in which the gospel is shaping you, it's not one-dimensional. It becomes multifaceted, multidimensional, very complex. It becomes organic. New life starts out like how? There's a single cell, and over time it becomes, it starts to grow. And as it grows, as it, starts, as it multiplies, as it starts to develop, it becomes very, very complex. Look, all of you, I know, you're trying to be decent citizens. You're working really, really hard, and even in the church, there are many here who want to serve, and you go to church, and you want to be consistent. Is that growth? A famous singer once said, going to church makes you a Christian the way going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. You see that? We tend to think, well, I pray, I go to church, I know my theology, I got it down. Oh, I was a worship leader some, someplace else. You know, I'm a good person. I'm gifted. But that all, does that give you a sense of superiority? If I were to ask people around you would they say that you are selfless? Would they say that you are characterized by joy? Would they say that you are poised in the midst of hardship? Would they say that you are a patient person? Would they say that you are a kind person? Or do you have a low melting point? Are you arrogant? Are you constantly causing dissension in the church? 
Are you constantly causing small arguments and little, little fires? We, in the church, we like to do the humble brag. Is that you? Are you dis- duplicitous? Are you, is your heart filled with gossip so much so that it comes out? Christians bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now, how do you cultivate it then? How do you grow it? Verse 16 You're going to have to walk with me on this. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, if you live by the Spirit, that is, if you do these, if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires, you will not indulge the desires of your sinful nature. Then in verse 18, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. I want you to put those sentences on top of each other. Paul's saying, if you live by the Spirit, it's the same thing as being led by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit are the same thing. Now, if you put those two things on top of each other and they're the same thing, then what that means is gratifying the desires of your sinful nature, verse 16, is the same thing as being under law. They're the same thing. So what does it mean to be under law? Paul's not saying that if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the law anymore. You no longer need to obey the law. That's not what he's saying. He says you are no longer under under law so when paul says you are under law here let me say it like this there are people here you obey the law you do good things you want to you want to live a good life but it's because there's something in you that's saying that if i do this then god will approve In fact, other people around me will approve. The more status I gain, the more stature I gain with other people, the more respected I become. If I become a leader, then I'm going to gain even more approval, and I'm going to work and work and work and work. And then I feel okay about myself. In fact, a lot of us grew up being taught that. You're growing out of a fear. You're doing these things out of, in some ways, a fear of God. Or at the least, you're negotiating with God. You're negotiating the terms of approval with God. That's what you're doing. You're doing it out of fear of some sort of punishment, maybe. But at the least, and at the core, a fear of rejection. And so we obey in order to feel accepted. We obey in order to be loved first among our brothers and sisters, among our friends, and then by God himself. We obey to prove ourselves. We obey to earn righteousness. And Paul's saying you are gratifying the desires of your sinful nature. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, I thought the desires of the sinful nature were sexual and drunkenness. Isn't that what he says? We're going to get there in a second. But Paul says, you are gratifying the desires of your sinful nature if you are placing yourself under law to obey out of fear, to obey to garner status or approval with God. Because deep deep inside, there is this deep desire for us to be accepted by God, to be loved by God. That's why we go to God, oftentimes. And so when people, when these people go to God, it's not because of a desire to get more of God. It's to work to earn the approval of God. You are under law. Paul saying, deep inside, many of us at church, many of us at church 
are really coming because you're looking for approval. It begins with peer approval. You're working for approval among men, among women. You're looking for, that gives you a sense of worth. And we say, if I have that, if I get this, then I will feel okay. Pastors fall into this all the time. I mean, if, if attendance starts to drop in a church, tell me how many pastors will sit there and have that not affect their psyche when they're preaching. And they're going to say, have I not worked hard? Have I not slaved over this? Don't I deserve more than this? It starts to become about you. If you don't get the status that you're looking for, whether it's at work or maybe you're not respected in the home or maybe you're, you're not getting a certain role in the church or elsewhere some sort of status among your, your peers, didn't I work hard? Didn't I obey? Don't I deserve to be recognized or known or approved by God? That's what we say. If I can just have it, then I'm going to feel okay. In the end, in the end, in our sinful nature, we're still trying to save ourselves. And in verse 17, Paul says, that's natural. That's just the way we are naturally disposed that way. And when you think that way, when you live that, that's contrary to the Spirit. It's not only contrary to the Spirit, it's, it's in conflict with the Spirit. We are naturally disposed to battle against the Spirit of God. Then Paul says, but if you're living by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, then, and Paul sums it up beautifully in verse 24. He says, then you crucify, you crucify that desire. You crucify the desire to earn your own salvation. To build your self-image through your accomplishments, through your gifts. Some of it's just through our wealth. Because wealth, much like our accomplishments, are things that we earn. We literally earn them, Right? That's a desire that Paul says spins out of control. Spins out of control. And in verse 19, he says it leads to acts of, sin, of the sinful nature. Because you have a heart that battles against the Spirit of God, that places yourself under law. In your battling against the Spirit of God, placing yourself under law, working for your own righteousness, it leads to great acts of the sinful nature. What are those acts? That word acts in the Greek is the word works. The works of the sinful nature, it's plural, which means that any one of these things is an indicator of the sinful nature, right? And he says it's obvious. First, he says, Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. And then at the end, he says, there's drunkenness and orgies, which really is translated to be drunken orgies, right? So there's drunkenness, addiction, all these kind of things. But then on the prior side, you see all the, all the sexual impurity and debauchery that takes place, the different facets of that. So far, you see, oh, well, Paul's clearly talking about the body. He's clearly talking about the physical issues, the physical acts. But then he gets to, you get to verse 17. At the core of verse 19, sorry, the core of verse 19, Paul mentions 10 things. He mentions 10 things 
that include idolatry and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissensions and factions and envy? I'm going to catalog them a little bit for you. Two of them, it almost deals with a counterfeit spirituality, idolatry and witchcraft, counterfeit spirituality. Four of them about destroying relationships. There's a propensity and something deep in our hearts, whether it's envy or jealousy, whether it's hatred, and we, it destroys relationships. And then the last four, he talks about things that result in, it's the result of that inner attitude that we hold that destroys relationships. It's the result of that. There's discord. There's, there's uh, factions. You see that? What's the point? When we think of the desires of the sinful nature, we think, oh, it's the body. It's physical. Physical desires. But Paul's talking about both the body. He doesn't leave out the body. He starts with the body, ends with the body. But then he says, but then there's the heart. There's a core. There's, it's not just about the behavior. It's about, it, or, or our sinful nature doesn't result in just behavioral issues, but motivational issues. What's inside? What's inward, the soul? In other words, when Paul says in verses 16 and 17, the desires of the sinful nature, he uses the Greek word epithumia, a lot of Greek words today, epithumia, that can be translated to be over-desires, a desire that's off the rails. He says that's the sinful nature. The desires, of, uh, don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Those desires, those passions, he says. It's like, it's off the rails. It's out of control. What the Spirit of God does is he doesn't just reel it in. You say, well, that means he, God wants me to have willpower. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the Spirit of God transforms the heart, gives you a new heart. Our sinful nature to earn our own righteousness, to earn, the word righteousness can be almost interchangeable with the word approval, to earn the approval of God. It's so strong that the issue is not even that we do bad things, but that we even take good things Things like wealth, that's a good thing. Your careers, they're good things. Your families, those are good things. Your wonderful homes, those are good things. And the heart says, all of a sudden, it turns these things into things that justify your righteousness. This is what I need to win the approval of people around me. This is what I need to earn God's approval in the end. I need this because if I can only get this, then I'm safe. Then I'm okay. I need to prove myself. I need to accomplish things. I need to do things or else I feel worthless. And Paul's saying that is contrary to the Spirit of God. It will ruin your soul, he says. You may be able to get those things, but it will ruin your heart, corrode your soul. And this is why we are such boss pleasers. This is why we are such people pleasers. Some of you are men pleasers. 
Some of you are women pleasers. Some of you are spouse pleasers. Some of you are children pleasers. But it's why we're so driven by idolatry and hatred and anxiety and fear and anger and despair and jealousy and selfishness. And it's why there's so much brokenness in the workplace, so much brokenness in our homes, so much brokenness in our neighborhoods, so much brokenness in the world, and so much brokenness even in the church, which is why Paul writes. And yet the heart still says, I still need more. I just need more than that guy. It's an over-desire. But in verse 24... Paul says, if you are in Jesus, you have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Again, desires, epithumia, with its passions and over-desires. You know what that means? What that means is, notice the gospel is not, if I crucify, if I do the work to crucify the sinful nature, then I'm in Jesus. That's not what he says. The text says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. They're the only ones who can. Your nature is all about wanting more. Your nature is all about, we're all addicts here in this room. Every one of us. Your nature is all about wanting more. We have desires that are out of control. And Paul says, crucify them. Nail them down. Nail them to the cross. That means you need to go to the cross. You need to bring those over-desires, submit those over-desires, acknowledge them, submit them, submit yourselves to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was crucified in our place. He put those sins on his cross. To the degree that you know that you belong to Jesus, to the degree that you know that it's the degree that you know that God is absolutely committed to you, there's the love that you've been looking for. There's the validation, the ultimate validation. There's the approval, the ultimate approval that you've been looking for all your life, there's the righteousness that you need, that you've been looking for all your life, and that's why we fall into these over-desires. Because deep down inside, we know, you know you can't obey perfectly. You can't accomplish perfectly. You can't earn your salvation on your own. Religion says, I obey in order to be approved. I obey in order to be accepted. I obey in order to earn righteousness. But the gospel says if you are in Christ, you are accepted. You are declared righteous. That is the power by which then we can obey and bear fruit. You see that? If you flip those two words around, obedience and acceptance, depending on which comes first, it will either make or break your life. That's what I'm trying to tell you. But if you're in the gospel, if you are in Christ, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Now you can go to God because you want more of God. Now you can obey the law and still not be under the law. 
Where can we get that kind of power to crucify our sinful nature? For that answer, I'm going to take you all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible. What do you see in Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, you see a garden. What do you have in the garden? You have fruit. There's a garden. Eden, paradise, fruit. You see, everything was fruitful in the garden. Everything was perfect in the garden. Family was perfect. Work was perfect. The world was fruitful. Everything was perfect. But when we chose to rebel against God, why? Because of our over-desires. Even God became what stopped being enough for us. We're in paradise. Everything was perfect. God wasn't enough for us. We thought life would be even more fruitful if we replaced God. And so we chose to. And instead of getting more fruit, we experienced the curse. And so in Genesis chapter 3, what's the curse? God says, there will be thorns and thistles for you. In other words, you want a life apart from me? I'm going to give you what you want. Okay. But then you're on your own now. Now you're going to have to work this ground. Without me, the ground goes cursed. You're going to be groaning and sweating and dying. And nothing is going to be fruitful. But on the cross, what do you see? Centuries later, Jesus Christ is on the cross and he's working, and he's groaning, and he's sweating, and he's bleeding, and his life is pouring out, and he's dying. Why? Because Jesus Christ is receiving the cosmic curse of our sin. As a penalty for our sin, he endured the cross, the cross that we deserved, so that we would receive what? The fruitfulness of God. We would receive the spirit of God. How do you know that we're guaranteed, we're assured the Spirit of God? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying there? What he's saying is, I have fully obeyed, and I'm coming to you to get more of you. My God, my God, I'm coming to you for you. And yet, I've been turned away, I've been abandoned, I've been rejected. I've been abandoned, forsaken. I've been given a life apart from God. And so now I'm dying, the ultimate death, separation from God on the cross. Jesus Christ received the curse. Jesus Christ received the thorns. That's why he wore a crown of thorns. You see that? Why? On the cross, Jesus got the thorns so that we would have fruit. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we would be accepted. Every time you see the cross, there is God's love, and it's assured for you. There is the approval of God. There is the righteousness of God, and it will bear fruit. Do you believe that? Do you believe? Because to the degree that you trust that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate fruitlessness for you, to the degree that you trust that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate curse for you, you can be fruitful. Because now you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul in verse 24 
He says, now you have the power. The gospel gives you the power to crucify the desires of the sinful nature. On one hand, the gospel is passive. It's a passive righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's something outside of you because inside we're dead, we're dying. So there's an alien righteousness that comes and is almost is endowed on us through the cross of Christ. And so we are accepted, we are approved, we are loved. That bears fruit. But Paul here then says, you yourself can actively crucify. It's an ongoing work. If you actually read the phrase in the original language, it's an ongoing work. On one hand, once and for all, crucified on Christ. But then it's an ongoing process of putting your desire to earn your own salvation to death. There's a battle that's going on in your heart constantly. A battle to live as God's child or a battle to live as you were born, apart from God. And that battle is constantly, it's a war. And the apostle Paul says, the indwelling spirit of God, because Christ has won the war once and for all, you now have every power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have that power then to overcome, to battle, to suffer, to endure the temptation, to endure the temptations of those over-desires in your life. All those things, why? Because you are accepted. You've been doing these things to win the approval of God, to earn righteousness, and it's already been given to you in full. Friends, my prayer is that Metro continues to grow as a church that grows in faith and bears incredible fruit, incredible fruit fruitfulness throughout the city, in your neighborhoods. But it begins with us here, inside us first. Let's pray.